Do you enjoy writing your own stories and designing your own campaigns? Maybe you just like exploring your character's background and world building. Do you want to develop your writing skills, but can't afford the time or money for a creative writing college program? Then the Adventure Writing Academy is just what you need. AWA is an online Skype-based school co-developed by Fantasy Flight Games writer Keith Ryan Cappell. A creative writing program that makes RPG writing a point of emphasis. In addition to a nerd-friendly curriculum, classes are joined by a rotating cast of guest students, each one a working professional in the field, there to help provide the guidance students receive. Last year, AWA featured familiar FFG names like Katrina Ostrander, Tim Cox, and Jason Marker, and RPG industry regulars like Ray Valise and Eric Cagle. And the final class session is a four-hour lecture on the business of RPG writing, game theory, and design by the creator of the narrative dice system himself, industry superstar, Jay Little. Improve your writing, collaborate, make connections, learn and grow in a friendly atmosphere of fellow nerds. Interested? Learn more and enroll today at www.adventurewritingacademy.com. Class, please be quiet. Any special message for all the kids watching at home? Stay out of trouble. Welcome to the RPG Academy Network presents. Film Studies. Welcome, classroom. I am Kalum, and I will be your teacher of foreign cinema. Today, we will be studying El Dia de la Bestia, a Christmas movie, or should I say, a Christmas star comedy from 1995 by director Alex de la Iglesia. And today, I'm joined by a fellow member of the faculty, Danny, could you introduce yourself? What are you the teacher of today? Hi, I'm Danny Neri. I am the teacher of all things metal, because that is my thing. So it's really cool that we are here on this movie that has to do a lot with heavy metal. I am a member of the RPG Academy, as I am on Tales of Blood and Stone and is a Shadow of the Demon Lord podcast. And also Return to Greyhawk, which is a streaming game on Sunday nights on the Greyhawk channel. And we managed to have someone directly from the Iberic Peninsula. Welcome among us, Nuria. Uh, well, yes, I'm calling from Barcelona. I'm basically Nuria Casellas. I think that I'm a teacher on the role-playing side. I really had fun watching the movie again, looking at it from that perspective. So I think it's going to be a great talk. In my day-to-day things, I design board games and I work as a semantic knowledge consultant. So a little set of warnings regarding the movie. This movie does contain quite a share of violence. An old man's genitals, a lot of victimization of women. Uh, again, that's, that's the third movie I select for film studies and all of them got that. It's, it's quite depressing. The movie itself also is um, quite satirical towards religion. Uh, I hope it won't shock any of our listeners. Viewer discretion is advised. This podcast episode might also include some explicit language. We're sorry about that and uh, please keep children... Away f- from the earphones. Yeah. 
<laughs> you can almost guarantee that when I'm on a podcast, the f bomb's going to drop at some point. <laughs> so, I'll try not to, so, but I cannot promise anything. <laughs> so, Nuria, what would be your five star review and your one sentence about this movie? It's a hard thing to put just a one sentence this movie, and it's also very hard to put it just one rating. I saw the movie a long, long time ago, probably when it came out and a little later in the UK in 99, and I remember it perfectly well. And it has some sort of nostalgic memory for me. So I would definitely have a rating regarding that. And then once you watch it, you know, 20 years later, some things are obviously very outdated and the same rating does not apply. Let's put it that way. So... <laughs> Uh, from the nostalgic perspective, I loved this movie. I had a lot of fun with it because it was crazy. The level of violence was overwhelming at the time, I think. But at the same time, because I was a role player, I could see that it was like a game, even if it, the movie said it wasn't a game. So for me, at least I would put it a four. And for the sentence, I would say it's a role-playing adventure gone wrong <laughs> some way. I have a completely different perspective as I've never seen this movie before. So I am looking at a movie from 1995 now in 2018 and I loved like just the over the top graphic violence and they you know that stuff just makes me happy but it was very hard to get over the objectification of women in the movie and some of the things they said were just like I wanted to reach across the screen and smack them and I know it's a movie and I know You know, it's a, a satire, but it was a little hard to swallow. For that, I do have to give it a three. Um, it's higher than what you would think, but I did love all the aspects they draw it brought in. The heavy metal, the Satan, all the corruption, and the blood and violence. It did make it definitely worth the watch. And I guess my tagline would be one of those monster truck things. Join us, the corrupted priests, an asshole metalhead, and a psychic fraud in their search for Satan. <laughs> <laughs> my own rating will be I would still give it a five because there's definitely a nostalgia value but when I rewatched it I think it was a, a year or two years ago I was actually surprised by a lot of things there were a lot of bad things in that movie which I thought were still sadly up to date in terms of mm -hmm. the political and the violence the immigrants the homelessness and this sort of thing so it actually surprised me in a, in a bad way not for the movie but for, for the news So yeah, I would still give it five star. My tagline would be going chaotic evil with lawful good motivations. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. I mean, I can understand why you mentioned, why you both mentioned the victimization of women. But for me, it's, I, I don't think there is victimization of women. I think there is definitely sexualization of women. So with the two women that appear... The two young ones are really very sexy and shown in a very appealing way. But I think violence is used across and it's not differently used in women as it is used in men. At least it doesn't give me the idea that women are mistreated in a particular way rather than everybody is mistreated. There is a, just a lot of violence to go around in that movie and everybody receives quite a lot of it. In that sense, that's why I'm not so sure about the victimization aspect, but, but we can we can talk about that. One thing that really sticks out on my mind is that it wasn't actual the physical actions of the violence. It was things that was said. 
you know, really does stand out is the guy in the the car, our, you know, metalhead who is totally a jerk and, you know, it's over the top and it's great. But he was talking about a talk show where a woman got raped by an alien. So that's so over the top. And he said, oh, but she looked like a slut anyway. She was probably asking for it. And I was like, whoo, okay, that, you know, that didn't go away. We were still in 2018 and that's the shit people are saying. But it just, I was like, wow. 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 I, I did not actually catch that. So, yeah. Put that, but I always thought it was um, like when you're trying to be sarcastic about something. Not the guy, but the director. The director. Using that sort of things in a person that it's obviously, you know. A tool bag. Dumb. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But obviously, I, perhaps I wanted to see it in the good light rather than in the, <laughs> in the bad light, which it really sounds pretty bad. And I didn't remember that line from the movie when I saw it uh, the other day. It, it came up and I was like, wow, I didn't remember this. And he always makes a lot of, this same character makes a lot of comments about hot women and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, how he would like to. Can I say it? Fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> the viewer discretion is advised. <laughs> but the, that's the kind of tone that he uses. And it's true that in 2018, it just gets a bit annoying. Let, let's come back to that. Uh, I'm going to give the, the little summary for the, the people who haven't seen the movie and who might listen to us. Yeah. Spoiler alert, obviously, because I'm going to tell everything. Bells are ringing. Angel, an anxious-looking Basque priest, played by Alex Angulo, is making his way to a church. There, he interrupts the prayers of another priest. Angel wants to make a confession. Not about past sins, but about those he is about to commit. His intentions are to do as much evil as possible. The other priest is taken aback, but Angel whispers his reasons, and the priest agrees to help him. However, that nameless priest immediately gets crushed by a massive stone cross. <laughs> Angel will go on his quest, alone. Welcome to Madrid, circa 1995. Feliz Navidad. Christmas is near, but the Spanish capital looks like a modern Sodom and Gomorrah. Streets are dark and dirty. Crime and homelessness are rampant. Even toy shops have a dark undertone as their windows showcase more toy guns than teddy bears or baby dolls. The news tells the story of a series of grisly murders targeting the homeless and immigrants under the motto Limpia Madrid, Clean Up Madrid. But Angel is not there for window shopping or watching the news. He spares no time before engaging into nefarious actions such as stealing from a homeless man pushing a street performer downstairs or cursing to hell a dying man. His meandering takes him to a record shop where he meets Jose Maria, played by Santiago Segura. This death metal fan helps Angel find the quotation mark most evil fans to listen to before inviting the priest to stare at his mother's boarding house. Later, Angel is caught stealing a book it's written by a corneocle TV show host called Professor Caban, played by Armando de Radza. The store manager questions angels, and the priest explains, You see, through his expert study of the revelation of St. John, Angel has found out that today, at Christmas, the infant Antichrist will be born. 
Angel desperately wants to find out where it will happen to prevent the apocalypse. The only way for him to find out this location is to be accepted by Satan as one of his followers. After fleeing the store, our hero kidnaps Prophet Caban with the help of Jose Maria and forces him to perform a bloody and drug-induced ritual to sell his soul to Satan. Despite Caban being a self-confessed con artist, the ritual does result in the trio witnessing or hallucinating an apparition, a supernatural black goat. However, the creature apparently rejects Angel, leaving the message, this is not a game. Angel and Rosemaria flee with the police pursuing them. They wreak havoc in the streets, crash a lecture about Nostradamus and a death metal concert. Angel is badly hurt and ready to give up when Caban reaches them through his television show. Caban has worked out where the Antichrist will be born. The trio gathers and rush to the site. Just like Christians gather in cross-shaped churches, Satan's worshippers will meet at a building shaped like the Mark of the Beast, the under-construction Twin Towers of the Gate of Europe. Wink wink, Brexit much? There, a newborn is crying, but he soon joins with his parents, the victims of some upper-middle-class looking Limpia Madrid thugs. Our trio faces off those far-right murderers. One of the thugs seems to be the beast himself. Jose Maria falls to his death. Caban is severely burned and disfigured, but Angel manages to shoot the beast. Angel finds the infant dead and cries. Years later, Angel and Caban now are anonymous homeless. The former TV stars lament that nobody will listen to how they saved the world. The end. So uh, we were talking about women, and as I was trying to cut short my summary of, of the movie, which, which can be a tedious exercise, yeah, I edited out all the women of that story. Which, <laughs> sorry about that. No, but, because uh, the, the women are accessories in this story. They're really just there for the plot to advance, but not really to make any particular difference. So they, they, there's nothing about women that is relevant to this movie, besides them being used for the movie, right? For blood sacrifice. I mean, that's all you need them for. Virgin. That's exactly all you need them them for. (laughs) I think I'd say kudos to the, I guess, who's the most interesting woman in the movie, who's also as evil as most of the other characters. Because as you were saying, everybody is very bad in this movie. Terrible people. I guess the, the best person is Angel himself, but he literally goes into doing horrible deeds but yeah uh, we got rosario who's the mother of uh, <laughs> of <Awesome>. jose maria it's <laughs> very racist but uh, is the one who tries to stop the thing with the gun she's a racist aggressive uh, she's vile and everything i think the mm-hmm. only mina and the girlfriend of uh, cabana are the only two that are sweet in this movie the rest yeah. are all pretty bad. Am I correct that Rosario is the widow of a fascist soldier? I, I don't... There's a picture of a carabinieri, but I wasn't sure if it was specific or if it was just a carabinieri. Uh, it's the picture of a Guardia Civil. Yes. It's a type of 
military police that we have in Spain that is, yeah, it has ties with the you know Franco era, but it remains after Franco era. So not necessarily needs to be fascist. It's just a representation that why she was so violent, why she had a shotgun at home, right? So because mm-hmm. her husband was a military guy. I think that's that was all. And she takes no shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Danny, what do you think would be your the moment you like the most and the moment you, you like the less? I had to say my favorite moment was when they actually conjured Satan and that goat that came in. It was pretty hot. Like, I just, I liked that scene. I liked that they were on acid. So you didn't know what really was happening, but it was good. And then to laugh at the end of the movie where you Satan again, but with the goat head and the human body, it just made me laugh because it was pretty ridiculous. I liked those parts. I liked going to the heavy metal store and getting that scene of Europe at the time, you know, makes my wicked little heart happy. I just say the real thing that really stuck out in my mind is that guy's line and just the that his representation was so over the top and so bad. I just wanted to go across the screen and smack him. And it actually started to get to the point where I wasn't enjoying it a little bit. Like I was getting furious. And then when he made some pretty shitty comments, I was like, yeah, this guy, you know, and that's good. I mean, they make you hate him. And that's what's supposed to happen, right? I guess so. Uh, what about you, Noya? <laughs> I think I have to agree. I, I love the scene of the incantation. Mm. The whole thing, like how he goes from not trying to help them to just try to help them and stall them until actually they end up seeing the goat and you don't know if it's the LSD or it's the goat or what's <laughs> going on there. And I found that scene quite funny and comical and at the same time quite interesting. So I, I really like that one. As little things, I like the little references that keep getting chained during the movie. Like when you see that, you know, Satanica is the name of the band that happens to play in hell. That <laughs> all these little details, I, I find them very amusing. And I really, I really like it when he has to say, where are you? I'm in hell. Because he was in the, in the place called the hell place, right? So I <laughs> found this pretty amusing and, and I like that. I like the fact that the main character is called Angel. Hmm. Yes. And then his goon is called Jose Maria, which means Joseph and Mary. <laughs> yeah. And the idea that they are sort of the three wise men, there's references to that a couple of times. You even see the three wise men at some point who get shot. Yeah. Little things for Europeans like me. I really enjoy for the 90s, the little detail that the TV channel, the people are speaking Italian there. Oh. And there's a portrait of Silvio Berlusconi, who's... Who's like sort of prototype for Donald Trump in a way. I mean, you see the picture of Silvio Berlusconi when you are from my generation and you, you think evil. So that it's, it's really long. Mm-hmm. to have a big portrait of him. Yeah. I love the invocation and the fact you're, you're not quite sure if the whole movie might be just uh, an hallucination <laughs> by the main characters, but to say different things, I think I, I really enjoyed the, the first petty little crimes. By Angel. Keying the cars. Uh, I mean, stealing from the omelet. <laughs> pushing the mime down the stairs in the subway. Oh, that one. Yes, that one sounds good. <laughs> and just the guy dying from the car crash and, and having the priest come and tell him, uh, you're going to rot in hell. <laughs> it's just so so petty and mean. And uh, the actor is very not good, I find, because he, he looks like, I don't know, he looks like very dedicated. He looks like very like a, a small countryside priest gone very bad. So I, I thought the performance was 
was really he was really from funny. the Basque country. Yes, he's wearing the chapella. He's wearing the hat. <laughs> Those little details. If you rewatch it, then you kind of see them. Yep. These little details and play words that the director used to it were very clever. I think. I had a question, if you don't mind, because I'm from the United States and I don't just know. It's just pure ignorance. The the cleanup Madrid thing that was spray painted everywhere. Does that have any significant? history of the timeline in 1995 or is it something just in the movie or is it real life based i don't seem to remember it was real life based per se mm -hmm. but it is true that uh, i mean obviously it's a problem or it was seen as a or the director wanted to make a case for the problem with immigration and the response that some people was giving to it yep and i think that the problem with that is that it's not it doesn't disappear with time. It's still there. It's very, very, very much modern. But I don't recall a particular incident mm -hmm. uh, that gave rise to that, but I would check it. Yeah. But I don't really recall it. What it did, so one of the things that is actually interesting is the place where the marks of the devil, which you said is the gate of Europe, uh, it's called the uh, Torresquillo. That's the name, the, the casual name of, of the place. And at the time, they were being built by the Kio company, which was owned by a couple of men called Alberto, and they were committing very major fraud. I think that he used that place not only as a symbol of, uh, because it, it was of a particular shape, but also as a symbol because there was a particular problem going around Madrid at the time with the speculation of buildings and, and things like that and construction. Mm -hmm. It's the idea of not only literal corruption. Just coming back on the, the idea of Olympia Madrid, I don't recall something as specific as having a special graffiti or recognized movement, but mm -hmm. there's definitely been stuff happening. I mean, the 90s, well, I would like to say the 2010s are better, but uh, the 90s definitely saw a rise of mm -hmm. far right. Again, I mentioned Silvio Berlusconi. He was very close to that. So th there's something which happened also in in France, a bit less so in Belgium, but it's something exaggerated, of course, but uh, it's something which it's still cut close to reality in the way people were treated and some stuff would, ha would happen. And what I thought was interesting with Olympia Madrid is when you actually see them, you don't see a band of neo-Nazi thugs. What you see is upper middle class white men with their little polo, they, they well sort of dress and they, they, they drive their Land Rover across town. And and yeah, that's the way, sadly, uh, a lot of far-right political movement feels. And uh, hmm. yeah, I cannot say specific events match that really, but sadly not far off from stuff. I think you're right. I mean, the I was watching it with my partner and, and I was just saying they just look like Madrileños, you know, they're just the typical upper class or middle upper class from Madrid dressed up at the style at the time, <laughs> uh, instead of just going for the easy thing, which is a group of neo-Nazis or skinheads, as we would call them here. That was interesting. I think that was also a point like that racism, sometimes we have a view of who performs these kind of acts, but in reality, there's much more uh, across, mm. you know, across social standings. 
That's deep. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, no, 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 no. You, you know, no, I mean, uh, you, you don't have to be sorry at all. It's, uh, and again, that's why I personally gave it five stars, regardless of the negative I, I share with you, is that beyond the satirical and the dark comedy, there were still messages in there, which sadly were, were still up to date. But, uh, yeah, coming back on the idea of corruption, what I did enjoy also about the movie was, as you said in the little details, there were a lot of things saying that everything is corrupt, tainted. I really enjoyed the shot of the window from the toy shop where you see all those toys and half of the toys are air guns, which are perfect replicas of weapons. And the truth is, I remember as a teenager going to Spain, and it was not only in Spain, but it's a specific memory of holiday as a teenager I would go there and there were a lot of those air guns and I would buy them myself. I, I mean, it's, it's a bit specific, uh, this thing, but in all over the movie, you see things which say things are very bad and very rotten and everybody's doing something bad. And at best, better people, the people you don't see doing something bad, they don't have smartphone to take videos, but they stand around to look at what's going on or, or they completely ignore it, but they, Nobody ever really reacts to say, wait a minute, something very wrong is going on right now. So hmm. it really feels like everything is rotten to the core and everywhere they go and everything they, they see. I, one of my favorite scenes of that is him casually walking into the market where everybody's dead, the, the fast, um, like the little convenience store. And he just throws money. Oh, that scene was just like perfect. I'm like, oh, that's no big deal. Like the cashier's dead, customer's dead. Let me just get what I came for and... I, I don't even know if he realizes they are. It's like he's oblivious to the rest of the world. Like <laughs> people don't care or don't matter or, you know, I, I'm doing my thing. Yeah, it, it makes you think a little bit once you've watched it. Once, while you're watching it, you're a bit too, it's a bit too much one after the other. It's just so much. Afterwards, you're like, oh, wow, that scene, you know. So is this a movie you would recommend specifically to tabletop role-playing game fans yeah i think i would because it's the pretty classic scenario you know it's your one-shot campaign and uh it's going to be done at the end and it's good i would definitely recommend it it gives you some great ideas for running like you know how tales of the loop is big like you know, going back all these different games placed in the 80s and like 90s are happening and it makes you want to like play one of them with some horror elements so i definitely know what i would set up for a game with this uh what system and I would definitely recommend it to role players. It is your classic one-shot scenario. It wasn't planned at all. It's been a long time. I mean, when I came up with the concept of film studies for the RPG Academy, El Dia de la Bestia was there on my first list of movies I wanted to share with listeners. But it's happening this month. It will be released just before December. Turns out it's a Christmas movie. Just like Die Hard. This, yeah, you know, you're right. <laughs> so we're out for Christmas. True. That is Merry so funny. Christmas. You know, it my... was a Christmas movie, yeah. I didn't think of it that way. Uh... <laughs> do they show it seasonally on uh, Spanish TV, uh, Nolia? Do they <laughs> say every Christmas, uh, Feliz Navidad? El Dia de la Bestia? No, I, I, well, not that I'm aware of, but yeah, I, that's true. I definitely consider I Heart a Christmas movie, and I never thought of El Dia de la Bestia as a Christmas movie, but it's absolutely true. <laughs> yes. So would you recommend it to a role-playing game fan, uh, Nolia? 
Oh, yeah, definitely. To me, it always looks like there's like, two parts from the role-playing perspective. Like the second part looks more like there's the party and there's the stereotypical characters and they all have a common goal and now they need to go solve it and they need to kind of find the clues and all this stuff, which you basically have in all the, the games, right? But the first part is more like everything that can go wrong for a DM. <laughs> you have these guys or girls that have made these crazy characters and they are just getting out of line. You don't know what to put. You put a mime. Oh, there's a mime on the street. Oh, I'm pushing the mime, right? <laughs> <laughs> Murder hobos at their best. <laughs> exactly. Oh, there's a hobo. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm hitting him. Or I'm, I'm stealing. There's a guy dying. They are asking you if you can do Oh, I, I'm going to steal from him. I'm going to say rotting hell, right? <laughs> I see it as the crazy players that would make your game impossible to run. <laughs> that is kind of the first part. <laughs> I think I would recommend it too to role-playing game fans and it's going to tie into my next question just because it's so similar my experience in France and Belgium playing games like Vampire the Masquerade in Nomine Satanis Nephilim even where you play in a contemporary setting and maybe not so much being horrible characters but just failing forward you know, <laughs> Terrible at everything and not picking up the right clues and struggling <laughs> and the game master. A bit like you were saying, there's so many little details. Maybe it's the game master desperate for the players to go in the right place. So no matter where. Wherever they go, the game master's got some kind of clues for them. I know you pick up and it's an inferno. And then it's like, no, at some point they need to catch a lead of some kind. But, and, and they fail everything. They get hurt. They, they flee. So... It really matches my experience of uh, many uh, game sessions with uh, one of the many occult contemporary games uh, I used to play in the in the 90s. The theme of the end of the world coming around 2000 was something which was in many many role playing games. So um, so it's it's directly uh, and that. The next question is: Would the two of you have specific role playing games which would be appropriate to adapt this movie into? I would like to run this in, in two systems. Uh, the first one being a cipher system by Monte Cook Games because it's so adaptable to anything. So we can go to this modern or 1995 era and all of a sudden jump into horror mode, you know, and have like Satan come out himself and the, the way the system works. It would just work beautifully to put those stats in and make it flow. And the other thing is it's not out yet, but I was just talking to Robert Schwab uh, who created Shadow of the Demon Lord. And they're doing a Kickstarter this month. And they're one of the things they have on their goals there is going to be like a modern Shadow of the Demon Lord campaign. And that game is just horrifically wonderful. It's bloody. It's grotesque. It's everything um, you're ever going to need an X card for. And I would love to run something like this in that system, which I'm going to do as soon as I get my hands on it. Nice. Nice. Nuria? I had trouble finding one because I've always played self-made systems with my groups of friends. So we, I started playing some well-known published systems, but soon we decided to create our own and, and we, haven't, we haven't ever gone back to the other ones. But yesterday I came up with one that I completely think would be a fantastic fit, which is uh, Ragnarok. I don't think anybody knows it. Uh, it's mm -hmm. a role-playing game that was created here in Spain around 92. So yeah. it would fit perfectly at the time. 
it's a modern Call of Cthulhu game. It was nice. it was a modern time terror occultism investigation role playing game. So it was basically like if we took Call of Cthulhu and we moved it to the nineties at the time. So that would basically be the movie, really. <laughs> so I think that that would work quite well because you wouldn't even need to try <laughs> to adapt much. It would be exactly what that game Ragnarok was meant to do. And I, I remembered it because I used to run it, although I would never, I would not remember what was the system now. But I, that was one of the games I used to run back in the 90s myself. That was fun. I think they've made a new edition or something recently. Because of the nostalgia of the game, there's a lot of fans here in Spain. There's no modern version of Akerare, right? No, there's no. I mean, this is like the same type of stuff that was coming at, at the 90s. We had a lot of very interesting role-playing games like Ragnarok, Akelarre. We had one called Mutantes en la Sombra, which is like uh, Mutants Ooh. in the Shadows. Ooh. That was like there had been a lot of ex- nuclear explosions, uh, so people had mutations based on that and that was a, like a 90s also a 90s game created here in spain uh, we had lots of those and they were all pretty dark because aquelarre is a very realistic medieval system so you, you shouldn't at the same time that it's completely fantasy the health is treated in a realistic way so if, if you get mm-hmm. wounded you would probably get an infection and you'll end up dying so you have to be <laughs> very careful in that world on my side, in tone, it definitely matches In Nomine Satanis, Magna Veritas. But in, in Nomine Satanis, you play demons themselves or angels ev- eventually. Ooh. The best match, I guess, is one I never played, but I heard a lot of. And there's a new version which came out recently. Again, Kickstarters, as you said, there's a lot of re-release and new versions. That would be the Swedish game Cult, which... From what I heard, it's exactly like you play someone, usually someone quite bad from the start, but you're going to go crazy today and through your deeds, uh, you might end up even going to hell and coming back. So it's kind of, it's kind of like preacher, but even darker and, and sadder. And a uh, last one more recent, which I played once for the fans of Powered by the Apocalypse, Urban Shadows. Seems like a system which would be uh, quite easy to use uh, to make an adaptation of uh, El Dia de la Bestia. I was mentioning it to you before that I've just found an interview with the director. I think the interview is from August this year. So this is kind of very strange that you just decided <laughs> to make this program and I, I just found it. They are interviewing him about his passion for role playing. So apparently Alex de la Iglesia is a nice. avid role player. And now that explains kind of a lot. When asked about the movie, he says literally he, he likes the narrative technique about Dungeons and Dragons and also from the Call of Cthulhu has influenced him a lot. Says in reality, and I say it to the people who understands it, for those who have played a lot, the Day of the Beast is a role-playing session <laughs> the interviewer says santiago segura is the barbarian and he laughs and says yes he's the barbarian but the priest is a cthulhu character he's an armitage says he knows absolutely everything 
about the great uh, occult powers, but he's never seen a TV because he's always been stuck in the university absorbing information. Mm -hmm. That's the way he saw, or at least that's what he explains in this interview about the characters that he saw. I, I didn't know that. So if you hadn't done this, this call, I wouldn't have looked it up. <laughs> I need to try to get him on the show someday. I don't know how good his English is, but uh, yeah, I would be over the moon to, to interview <laughs> Alex de la Iglesia. Oh, that would uh, be great. <laughs> uh, we sort of hinted at that already. What are the ideas, themes from El Dia de la Bestia that we would draw into a role-playing game? I mean, I can go with one, for instance. A subject which I find is interesting is always the idea, and it's kind of a classic villain also in, in D&D and many other games, is the idea of either... Having the authority, which is representing a form of good, which is actually corrupted and doing evil things, mm. or even having good characters or very devout characters doing things which are uh, very bad because they think there's a bigger picture, something more threatening than the common folks. And they, yeah, they might overlook the well-being of common folks for a long-termist uh, sort of uh, agenda while still saying, I serve the uh, god of justice, or these sort of things. I love the uh, corruption. Playing Shadow of the Demon Lord so much, I am so in love with having a character's actions affect their role-playing and their actual character. So I would definitely, this just makes me want to play a game where, you know, are you adding the corruption and then take the Call of Thula, add some insanity to make it all a great big giant clusterfuck, but do it in modern times or, you know, set in an actual era as opposed to a fantasy world. I obviously like the idea that the characters seem to be pursuing an evil that they think they know. And then in the end, that's not the evil that they were pursuing. <laughs> and I kind of like that idea to make sure that they never know exactly who they should be chasing. If I were, was going to do a, a game related to this, I would like to make sure that the characters seem convinced about what they are doing. And then at the same time, at some point, they realize they really don't know. And I think that that was really, really interesting. Like when the priest suddenly says, I don't have a clue what I've been doing for the last one hour, right? <laughs> and I think that's a great moment to have in, in a game, like when everybody's at a loss, like, or really all this was for something or and they need to look for new clues i like that has any of you two stopped the apocalypse in a game or a form of apocalypse every day have i stopped <laughs> an apocalypse in a game no i think well yeah i think so but i think we didn't manage to step stop it i think that's the problem no we didn't manage to stop it it actually happened <laughs> Just postponing the inevitable. Yeah, yeah, no, we, we failed. We miserably failed and we, we woke up after the apocalypse again to just, just see all the mess that we had created or not stopped and uh, it was awful. <laughs> so. I, I really love playing that doomed game. I'm running a game now in Greyhawk in the Great Kingdom and it's uh, CY583. So things are about to shit the, hit the fan and everything, it's like, it's the most corrupt, terrible land ever. And the outcome is going to be bad. And I'm running characters in a world that I'm going to keep to history is doomed. So just seeing that struggle is such like a fun thing where you know how it's going to end, but you're going to fight the best you can. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember not stopping the apocalypse, but putting it on a loop. <laughs> it was Nephilim, Contemporary Occult. We were in Lyon in France, and the apocalypse was triggered by the character called Lilith, mm. the, the mythical character, Lilith, waking up from uh, a slumber. And this happened, the end of the world, big battle with the, the riders of the apocalypse and so on uh, happened. That we did not stop it, but everybody involved, a lot of NPCs said, okay, we're going to put it on a feedback loop. <laughs> <laughs> so from that point on, the apocalypse happened, but we were kind of rebooted five years before and we had to redo it again. And the idea is that sort of happened several times. Uh. And uh, commoners, humans wouldn't notice it. Uh, maybe, you know, they'd have little uh, deja vu effect like in the Matrix, but they, they wouldn't know why... While most of the somewhat good NPC were trying to working out, no, oh, do we really stop that now? <laughs> but it was just, just delayed. Mine was in uh, the seventh sea. <laughs> we unleashed I don't even know what because uh, it was such a such a mess. The one that we created, I think that the witches that they were touching the threads of destiny messed up with them a bit too much, and we ended up in a very very destroyed world. So we didn't. Stop the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a, it's a good concept, the idea of the X card. You know, when I picked that movie, first of all, with any movie, I'm a bit concerned about the different sensibilities, depending on well, someone in the US and someone uh, not only uh, from Europe, but uh, from France. And I think Latin countries got even a different thing going on. But uh, yeah, have you ever played games which are non-PC, non-politically correct? Every week. <laughs> I'll stop talking about Shadow of the Demon Lord, but it's just it's so prevalent in my life and I play it so often. Well, it's very appropriate to the movie also, I think, so it's fine. Very much so. We have to put a listener in discretion all the time. The game itself is an X card. It just touches on so many incredibly dark things that are so not talked about. And whenever I run it at a convention or anything, there's always the X card at the table because it's a different story when you're running at a group, um, but we always have that session zero of running a long-term, what things are we not going to touch upon so that everybody's comfortable? But you can't do that at a convention. So you put the X card down and you make sure you're sensible about how you're running a game that's not sensible. But also, you know, Apocalypse Now, all those games, when you're playing with strangers, I think it's always appropriate. And it's always appropriate with your home groups to have that first session zero and just really put on what is going to be off the table and having a trusting relationship with the GM knowing that something's wrong. You can talk about it. Yeah, I don't think I've had one of those, really. I don't game with strangers. So in that sense, the, the gaming group, we, we know each other quite a lot. So I think that whatever we use, we know that everybody's going to be okay with it. And obviously, we can tell each other if we're not. So I've never had that feeling that we were going a bit too far. But it's true that we haven't touched upon certain things. I do remember somehow, a com not complaining, but mentioning at some point that sometimes I, I really didn't want discussed in a game sexual abuse. For example, that's out of the question. I, I really don't want to play a game where we're, we're kind of, we're interacting with characters in, in such a way that we can abuse them for some reason or purpose. That's not something I would I would like to play with. Now that I think of it, I had a campaign where I was a player and which sort of ended due to a lack of X card or because there's been a 
uh, I don't know how to say that, but yeah, discrepancy between what was described to us and uh, our expectations at some point. And it's a bit mm-hmm. related with what we were saying about playing devout character. I was playing a character who was really into the, the religion of this post-apocalyptic world. Uh, it's a game called Dark Earth, where all the world is uh, into the darkness. My character was sort of inspired by late days Johnny Cash, you know, albums like Hurt mm-hmm. or My Mother's Hymn Book. It's got this kind of rock and roll, but at the same time, religious. And the campaign was sort of killed when we were captured by fanatics of my own religion. And then we got tortured for several hours by them and then told, mm. your only way out is to join a crusade for the cult. And at that point, was over for me because in terms of playing my character was like okay i had two solutions i was happy with what i selected but it, it contributed to the end of the the campaign for me my character was either he couldn't live with that if he lived with that it would mean that he accepted sort of a form of hypocrisy towards a religion so instead he decided to make a stand and die a martyr and uh, and yeah, the, the whole torture to the uh, all the most of the players, and uh, with the cherry on top of me, uh, pretty much uh, committing suicide by, by a third party, uh, really, uh, yeah, killed <laughs> that campaign. Mm. So yeah, next card or uh, session zero would have been nice with that. So, but uh, on one hand, it's it was not a great experience. It was a pity to to have a campaign hand like that. On the other hand. It's one of the most interesting things I role-played that last session because it made me really think Tough. what I want to do with this character, what is meaningful to him, and uh, and uh, I picked the option which I thought it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a tough thing. Uh, running a game on Twitch, even people in the chat like have a hard time. Like, you know, Even though you, you give a warning and you know it's, it's streaming live, you got to listen to everybody. And sometimes you're like, oh, like that's, uh, it's tough. But that's the great thing about role-playing games. When your players are in tears or you as a GM is actually, you know, tearing up because of what you're pushing. It's like, you're, you know, as long as everybody's comfortable with it, you're having a good game. <laughs> yeah. There's something cathartic. And uh, uh, I was tempted at the beginning of this episode to say a bit more about the aim towards maybe religious listeners. I personally mean no disrespect to religion itself uh but i think playing hard subjects or laughing at hard subjects is is actually a way to engage with with said subject and uh it's not it's not something which lessened that thing uh, i find personally so so yeah i think you could be well personally again uh, uh yeah i i, I don't Enjoy a movie like El Dia de la Bestia thinking, ha ha ha, it's having so much fun at the expense of religious people. Mm. No, I think it's uh, anything which is standing right in their boots can be uh, laughed at to some extent. It's making fun of nearly everyone. Mm-hmm. Look at it a little bit because the Italian, no, the Professor Caven, in the end, he represents a fraud. It's also making fun of all the people that believes in all these other things because in the end we still don't know if they were high <laughs> so there's all these unknowns and opens yeah they, they think they really saved the world but is it true right so um the, the real bad guys are the guys who are 
still middle class, still going to work, still doing their things and being completely racist about it. That's the hard talk about that movie. <laughs> Everyone is bad at this movie. Actually, it reminds me of a, there's a, a rather odd interview uh, available. It can be found on YouTube of John Cleese at the time when Life of Brian was released. Mm. So it's an interview with well, a priest, John Cleese, and an interviewer. And at the time, well, Life of Brian nowadays, we don't think of it exactly as something shocking. I mean, we, we've got Book of Mormon now. It's kind of lighthearted. So. And the priest was really, really upset and telling to John Cleese that you're having fun at the expense of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And John Cleese was trying to point out, and I agree with that, if you look at a movie like Life of Brian, mm -hmm. you don't see Jesus Christ being an idiot. You see all the humans being idiots. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the whole That's point. true across the board, so... <laughs> It reminded me of one last theme of idea I rather enjoyed is the idea of humans as the bad guys. Yes. Even in fantasy world, I quite like when, uh, yeah, the bad guys are not the orcs or the elves or whatever, but uh, they are just, uh, yeah, humans. There's this great book called uh, Wings of Twilight. I think it's named by Hans Cumming. And it has that where the humans in the paladin are coming in to raid the dungeon is the, that classic reverse dungeon crawl. But your book is about the people that are not the dungeon, like the underground, you know, where the monsters are. And the book is from the view of the monsters. They're just defending their lands and their family against that asshole paladin, Count Von Strom. You know, it's, I love it because, yes. Sounds good. Uh, I'll check it out. Yeah, I think that there's a lot to that. Some of these, so for example, when I play some games sometimes or when I watch some fantasy movie, I want just to be entertained. I, I don't want to have a, you know, a discussion about torture or, uh, or abuse or violence. But when, sometimes you're playing and you're being very violent, but it's kind of acceptable because it's an orc, <laughs> right? And at the end of the day, there's still a lot of violence. So sometimes you're just doing all those things that in another kind of game, you would need an X card on top. But because mm -hmm. you don't feel like, you don't relate that you're actually exercising a level of violence that you should be talking about it or justifying, then it's just orcs, you know, I just killed 10,000 of them. Mm -hmm. I can do a cleave and I can get three in one go. So that was fantastic. But I think that once you start playing some games where the opponents have morality and everybody has their own reasons to do what they're doing, then it gets a bit harder and it requires more understanding of why, what are we doing with this game? And what are we prepared to play too? Because I'm not sure everybody's done torture in their games, but you could torture an orc to find out something, right? Perhaps not the same thing as torturing another human to find out something in the, in the way that it's been represented in the game so far. Some DMs manage to do that, even with orcs. Mm. It's just sometimes the way that we've explained the story and that we've characterized the, you know, mindless orcs that are nobody and they really have no families and you don't care about them. But I've played with some DMs that suddenly you find out, you know, they, they had a family and then you just mm -hmm. killed their father and, uh, you know, you took their fingers out to find out where whatever <laughs> was. And then you felt bad. And I think that that's the, the beauty of the DMs to give that depth or not depending on what sometimes you want to do with your game. If you just want to uh, have a very lighthearted game or a more deep, challenging, morally story. It reminds me I did something uh, a bit similar. 
uh, running just the adventure, which is in the Dungeon Master Guide for 4th edition. So it's a, a little dungeon with a dragon at the end, and uh, there's um, cobbles all along the way. And uh, because I'm a, a bit obsessive architect, I didn't feel like... And there are just cobbles in that room. I was like, yeah, no, but if they're there, they must be living there. They, they need to have some kind of life. They should be doing stuff. And if they are there and they do stuff, they, they got family or whatever. So I run the dungeon pretty much like in the book, just giving small hints of people actually living there with trash and sort of things. But when they had killed all the cobbles, I made my player find a they found a nursery with just the eggs, not the actual babies, but oh. the eggs of the kobold. And so the choice was, okay, well, you find all those eggs from kobolds. Well, you can leave the eggs alone, or maybe they will still hatch. But then you will have kobolds again in this area, and maybe they will attack people. Or you smash all the eggs. Hmm. Which is not exactly something very, uh, well, lawful good, I would say. Well, maybe it is, but uh, actually it was interesting to have my murder hobo player face such a situation. I just have to throw in one little quick thing that I really liked and made me giggle is when he goes into the heavy metal store with a list of bands on there and like Iron Maiden is on there and it was like, oh, that's some heavy shit, man. I just I just started laughing so hard. Like it was it was just beautiful to see like classic Maiden put on there. And Did you manage to read the other bands? Because they, they are... I saw like Napalm. I, I didn't know if it was Napalm Death in a different language. I wasn't... The fun thing of that note is that it's like, how is it... How it is said in Spanish? How you would spell it if it was written in Spanish? By someone who doesn't know them. <laughs> Somebody who just hears the name and writes them down. So <laughs> Nepal Death, it was D-E-Z, because that would sound death. In so I, I found that completely hilarious. I really <laughs> like that note. And the other band is written A-H-D-E-C-E, which is A-C-D-C. That's ACDC, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's ACDC. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> you had an issue with the depiction of metalheads, you told me, Danny. You did not talk about that. Oh, it was just, I mean, it was like that classic, they're dumb, Satan-worshipping assholes, um, which was right for the movie. Ugly, and dirty. <laughs> yeah, right. Wants to fuck every broad in the house. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it was it was funny. But man, sometimes it's like, you know, just because yeah. the guy was despicable. But that's what he was supposed to be. Apparently, the actor confessed that he doesn't like heavy at all. He, he prefers <laughs> Frank Sinatra. That's yeah. that's what you can find in the MDB uh, trivia. Yeah. That's so funny. I think that's the most stereotypical of the three. I think the other two, I mean, of course, one's the priest that is devoted and stuff, but he has this kind of trying to make the, the most evil possible story, which is a bit different. And the other guy is mm -hmm. the fraud guy, Italian, you know. But this guy is just the embodiment of a super big stereotype. It's far too much at some point or sometimes you're like, oh, my God, he's just stupid, a bit dumb. Um, but sweet. <laughs> he takes care yeah. of his granddad. He is sweet and takes Angel under his wing and is going to protect him no matter what. And I kind of like that of the character. 
that even if he doesn't know him, he kind of thinks there's a connection between the two and he's just going <laughs> to protect them. And when sometimes he finds him in trouble, he's like, I should have never left him alone. You know, that, that was my calling in life. Even until the end, that's what he does. He protects him. He dies for him, in a sense. I like that part of that character. He looks like this guy who's a bit crazy, smashing the head of a guy on the counter at the beginning <laughs> of the movie. He always shoots his shotgun up. He actually doesn't shoot anybody, as far as I remember. The image of him is a very violent guy, while in the end, he's not so violent as you would think he is. So that, that's a kind of a good thing, I think. Fuerte. <laughs> I just love all, all these lines like poder, fuerte, hostia, so punctuations in a sentence. Yeah, que fuerte. I, I, <laughs> that, it's very funny because the translation of fuerte is heavy, right? Ah, I didn't know that. <laughs> in the, trans the subtitles in English, you're constantly there. That's heavy, that's heavy. And it's like in <laughs> Spanish, doesn't make much sense. We, we say It's fuerte and heavy. It's heavy, right? Heavy metal is heavy metal. We don't translate yeah, yeah. that. Coming from French, I translated fuerte as fort, strong, as strong. Yeah. Yeah, because it's something we say in French also. Uh, oh, it's trop fort. Yeah, it's, uh, but it would be how crazy or, uh, you know, crazy shit. Que fuerte. <laughs> I don't know. And they used heavy in the translation. I was like, I don't think anybody was going to understand that. I just love that he doesn't question anything. Like, like when the priest asks him, Can you play it in reverse? You just say, yeah, yeah, but it, it just screws up the, the reader, but uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. And he still enjoys it. That's the funny thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. I think that's it, unless you got something. Oh, just thank you very much for this. It was great yeah. meeting you, Danny. It's very nice to meet you too. This is awesome. Well, thank you, uh, Noya and Danny, for joining us. Everyone, listeners, as you would know, you can find the RPG Academy on Twitter at the RPG Academy. You can find all the shows of the RPG Academy Network on the website of the RPG Academy. The RPG Academy, everyone here is doing it out of the passion for the hobby, but we do have expense, so do visit the Patreon of uh, the Rollies Podcast of the RPG Academy and uh, any other shows you might enjoy. Nuria. Do you have anything to plug? No. Uh, just thank you, everybody. Uh, you don't have a board game to sell. Oh, a board game to sell. Yeah, plug your work. That's the point. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> well, I recently published, well, the WizKids published Endless Pass Viking Saga, which is a card game about Vikings, and there's a lot of killing and no morals at all. And you're basically there for the glory. And you made that? Yeah. Wow, amazing. It finally came out in, I think it was April, March this year. I'm very happy it's, it's out and people can play it and at least have fun with it. It's a very fast playing card game. It might last like half an hour, depending on the number of players. So I recommend it if you want something quick and funny to play with your friends where you're Vikings and you're trying to kill a lot of monsters and also kill each other. So that's uh, that's a recommendation. <laughs> Job done. Where can people find you on Twitter? My handle is Nukaika. It's N-U-C-A-I-C-A. And I'm pretty much everywhere with that name. I'm now designing other kind of games for a label called Kukafera Games, which is a publishing company that I've created. And they are going to be games about travel and mythology. 